Our guest today is John Nielsen, who is the pre-medical advisor at the University of Utah. Uh, we're going to discuss his program, what services are offered to University of Utah students, um, as well as tips and pointers for students interested in going to medical school. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. Well, welcome to another edition of Talking uh, Missions and Med Student Life. I have a special guest today. I'm down here visiting our main campus here at the University of Utah. I'm here with John Nielsen, uh, who's the pre-medical advisor uh, for the undergraduates. And I'll let John kind of introduce himself. Um, thanks, Dr. Chan. I'm John Nielsen, like he said. Um, my official title is Director of Pre-Professional Advising at the University of Utah. And what that means is I get to help students that are interested in really pretty much any of the health professions, uh, not technically all of them, and a list is found on our website, um, but most of them, most of those that require going beyond the bachelor's degree mm-hmm. to, uh, in order to practice in that field, uh, they come to our office. So we've got a few advisors here and some um, support services. I got into this um, a while ago. I was actually uh, one of the pre-law advisors before this. All of my degrees were in history, and... Um, I was working in student affairs, and um, there was an opening available, and my dean said, would you like to do pre-med? Because she saw that I'd had a lot of the basic science classes on my transcript and that kind of stuff. And I'd done some history and philosophy of science work, and so I said, sure, that seems like it's kind of interesting, and it's been a fun challenge for the last five, si- five, six years. Five, now, six man. years. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the program here at the U. So, John, let's you know, let's pretend... You know, I'm taught we're, we're speaking to all the high school seniors out there. Tell me about the pre-professional advising program here at the U. How does it work? How does it start? Yeah, so the first thing to know is it's not as official as people think it is. So a lot of people, when they think about pre-med specifically or pre-dental, they think of that as a major that you declare that is on your transcript that sets out for you every single class you're going to be taking when you're at the university. And one of our first jobs in pre-professional advising is to let students and parents and other people know that that's not really the case, that they can major in whatever they want. And so um, because of that, it makes it interesting for us. We get really involved in what their major might be because that is as far as a lot of people have thought about it, um, is I'm going to be pre-med, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be pre-dental, I'm going to be a dentist, and they haven't thought beyond that. And they know there's science classes involved. Yeah. And so we help them with that whole orientation to this is college and this is what you're doing. So their first question usually is, what should I major in? Yeah, it's usually their first question. Okay. Yeah, right. that's usually their very first question is, what do I major in? And um, we can provide statistics that show this percentage of you know students major in biology, this percentage major in chemistry, this percentage major in business. But really, they're all over the place. And mm-hmm. so we typically tell... A lot of stories, um, which are kind of impressive to students. You know, this many theater majors last year, this many music majors. And we kind of use some outside examples mm-hmm. to show them that you can be one of those majors, do the science classes you have to do to prepare for the MCAT and other kinds of things, and um, get into med school okay. successfully. So can you start, I mean, do you talk to high school seniors before they enroll, or, or is it mostly freshmen and fresh women you're talking to? Or who's your largest, I, I would say, uh, population you work with yeah so we um we probably numbers wise the biggest group we're dealing with are freshmen okay um because when you look at the pre-med population at the university of utah people know about the university of utah they know it's got a reputation for being fantastic in the health sciences they know about the med school they know about the the pharmacy school the college of nursing the other programs and so a lot of students come here because of those programs okay. um, as undergraduates 
so when um, when they're doing that, I think uh, it's kind of our job to kind of orient them towards the right resources on campus, the right kinds of extracurricular activities and, and things like that. And so with freshmen, we're really kind of like an extension of orientation is one way to look at it mm-hmm. for specifically um, health science interested students. So occasionally we'll work with freshmen uh, for some of the programs, we'll take them on tours of the anatomy lab. And that's a really great experience for students that cannot handle that mm-hmm. and for students that just get excited by that and they are on fire at at that point so we do a lot of introductory activities Mm -hmm. the second biggest group we deal with are the prospective students that are high school seniors okay we see students as young as um i've seen sophomores in high school Mm -hmm. visit our office with their parents and they're welcome to do that i think that's a little bit early i really i think high school seniors are kind of the earliest we would need to see somebody to really help them start getting prepared all right so you know if i was a freshman here as an undergraduate at the university of utah how do I go about meeting you? I mean, what's the process like? Do I meet with you right away, or, or do I work with someone else first, or how is that set up? So I mentioned orientation before, um, and we kind of act as an extension of that for students that are starting out. With orientation, whenever a student attends the University of Utah, when they're admitted, they have to attend an orientation. When they go to orientation, there's an option to come meet with us at mm-hmm. that orientation session. So we do a full information session on the science classes students need to take, on the extracurricular activities, on the kinds of majors they want to be thinking about, and things like that. So typically that's our first introduction to students. They'll see us at the orientation. Mm-hmm. We will tell them um, what classes they might want to be taking. We'll help them set up a class schedule. So we see them before they've even started taking classes. And then um, the next step will be typically seeing us at what is called uh, mandatory advising. So every freshman at the University of Utah is required to see an advisor. Mm-hmm. It's kind of up to them I didn't know which that. advisor they see. Mm-hmm. And we are one option. So a lot of pre-med students will see us. And if they do that, they're given an earlier registration date okay. than um, everybody else except for the graduating seniors. That's a one-time deal. So they t- we see that's, that's kind of our follow-up mm-hmm. to that orientation session with them. So they incentivize them coming in to see you with that early registration date. Right. And that means you get to enroll in you have more option you, you've classes? got more options okay. you know it really helps out with like the chemistry labs and making okay. sure that you can fit in your part-time job around that kind of thing yeah. so but and it's really easy to access our office too most students will either walk in they'll call or they can make an appointment online yeah they go to ppa.utah.edu yeah i read yeah i heard that uh yeah you can now schedule appointments online which i think right. is fantastic mm-hmm. so and uh so it's you and can you just introduce your staff here in the mm-hmm. office i mean who works here and what kind of support do you guys have so right now we've got two full-time advisors, so myself um, and Mayumi Kasai, and uh, we can essentially, between the two of us, handle any of the types of student questions or situations we encounter um, from pre-med to pre-chiropractic, from freshmen to seniors to post-baccalaureate students in between. We have a peer advisor, Anna Chwaki, who's uh, relatively new. And uh, her background's in education, and she works with brand-new students, so first-time visitors to the office. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll see her. And first-time, that can be first-time transfer students as well. And she's completely well-versed in all the beginning issues students have. When it comes to application issues, that's for the full-time advisors to kind of deal with. Uh, We also have Cheryl McAllister, who's our executive secretary, and she keeps the office running. She Mm -hmm. keeps... um, our visitors happy. She maintains our front area. She uh, runs our letter recommendation service. Um, all those kinds of things. Our library. 
Fantastic. Now, you mentioned a peer advisor. Is this individual interested in going to medical school as well, or how would you characterize this person? So peer advisors um, are a pretty common practice in advising offices um, in the U.S., and at most institutions, there will be one or more peer advisors. They usually go by the name peer advisors, sometimes peer mentors. We have decided, based on some uh, research we have done, to only employ students that are not planning on attending um, one of the programs we advise okay. in. Uh, we had found that students had some issues in uh, some of our surveys with feeling like if they were being advised by potential competition, they mm. might not get the best advice. Or um, there was another set of concerns, which was that those students might have access to certain kinds of privileged information, letters of recommendation, that kind of thing. So we we uh, typically employ students that have backgrounds in education, or in many cases, they've taken many of the science courses, um, so they're great sources of information for students that want to know, well, you know, should I take cell biology from this professor or this mm-hmm. professor, organic chemistry from this professor, or this professor, but they're not um, felt to be in any way competing with the students that are coming in for advising. Yeah. That sounds excellent. Excellent. And, um, you know, let's just talk about the services here at your office, John, because I've always been impressed by what you have down here. Um, what kind of, like, if you're, if I was interested in medical school, again, I'm an undergraduate, what kind of things does your office provide? So the main thing that we do, and this sounds really simple, is one-on-one advising. Mm -hmm. And when I started in this position, I looked at the amount of time that was being spent on -on one-on-one advising. And during the typical advisor's day, it was occupying about two-thirds of the day. And that's still what it usually is, half to two-thirds of our day. But I was concerned the amount of time wasn't enough. They were typically... um, 15 to 20 minute inter- interactions. Mm-hmm. And um, what I, one of the first things I did is to move that to 30 minute interactions because I saw that when a pre-med student or other pre-professional student came in, they had way too many uh, concerns to deal with in 15 to 20 mm-hmm. minutes that they needed that, that longer amount of time to get all of their questions answered. So that's the first thing. That's the first way students typically interact with us is that one-on-one advising appointment. And um, in that appointment, we can do that major selection. So it's not just talking about pre-med issues, science courses, mm-hmm. extracurriculars, but also us knowing a lot about every single major on this campus. If a mm-hmm. student says, well, you know, look at my transcripts. I'm transferring from Salt Lake Community College, for instance. Okay. We could look and try to help them uh, find a major that works for them, depending on their goals. We try to individualize. Are, you know, we have a lot of general information. We try to individualize that information as best we can in that 30 minutes. That's the main thing we do. Um, when a student gets closer to application, we work much more intensively with them if they want to. Mm-hmm. So that can include editing their personal statements, um, usually for content, although we will do a little bit for grammar mm-hmm. and stylistics. Um, looking at really every portion of their application they, they want us to look at. Mm-hmm. We do mock interviews. I just did one this morning with a student. Um, and... Um, that's the way that most students interact with us. Those are an hour-long yeah. mock interview. So, John, that sounds fantastic. So it sounds like, you know, you know, if I'm struggling with my interviewing skills, and I think interviews can be very anxiety-provoking, it sounds like right. you can come to this office and get some practice interviews. So. Right, yeah. And, and, and we've looked at what a lot of um, schools are doing and the formats they use. And so even though our mock interviews are not going to duplicate all of the formats at all of the schools, for instance, we're not doing multiple mini-interview mm-hmm. um, prep here at this point, we don't have the resources for that, we can point students to those resources. Okay. Uh, in our library, we have DVDs mm-hmm. on how to prepare for interviews, and so we have a lot of other methods besides just um, our mock interviews. Yeah. You mentioned your library. I know like, um, you know, you can talk about where your office is located, but I know you have a lot of material here. Can you talk a little bit more about that, John? Yeah, so in Building 44, the building without a name, we're near the bookstore <laughs> on campus, um, 
in room 206, the main office where students wait um, to be seen by advisors and where they come to check on letters of recommendation. We have a letter of recommendation collection service. Um, we have a library. It's not a huge library, but I think it's um, a very relevant one. We have memoirs by physicians. Um, we have MCAT prep materials. Mm-hmm. We have um, brochures from individual medical schools. We have prep materials on the interview, on writing personal statements, on lots of specific areas of medicine. And so when students are looking at making decisions like, do I apply to MD school only or do I look in DO school? Um, when they're looking at, do I have the skill set that's better suited me, suiting me for dentistry or for uh, medicine? They can find a lot of information in that library, and they, that's a circulating library. It's not just a reference library. They can come and check those materials out. And uh, like right now, we've got a lot of the MCAT and, mm-hmm. and DAP prep materials checked out. So students come in often without an appointment and just sit and browse through materials and then check some of them out. Yeah. John, I think that's fantastic. You know, when you talk about advising, and that sounds like that's the core of what you do here, which makes sense, um, it comforts me because I think – you know, the image is like, oh, you just help people pick a major or classes, and that is a small part of what you do. But I think the larger mm-hmm. issue I'm, I'm picking up on is that you try to help students figure out what program is best for them or what maybe what school is best for them or maybe if they should even, should even go down this path or not. Right, and we try to be really careful with that. Uh, if a student comes in and says, I want to be a doctor, that is my goal, we, we don't push back a lot with that. We really try to go with what the student says their goals are. If we notice that a couple years down the road, and we interact with students over many years, that their um, grades don't seem to be getting them in a position where they can be a competitive applicant to a lot of places, we start talking about alternatives. But we really, you know, we don't rule somebody out. Mm -hmm. I've heard all kinds of horror stories of advisors um, that will do that kind of thing. And I know it happens. I, I, haven't, I don't know any of those advisors. Mm-hmm. The advisors I know are fantastic. But I've heard those kinds of stories from students. They'll say, yeah, this person looked at one small aspect of my, maybe my high school preparation and said, you don't have the grades necessary for med school. Mm-hmm. And so we, don't, we, have a, we try to take a more encouraging approach. Um, I've seen a lot of students come back from having a, a somewhat lower GPA, having a, maybe not as much confidence in terms of social skills and being able to develop those skills. Mm-hmm. So um, we're really reticent to pigeonhole somebody and say, you should do this, you should do that. But when a student comes in and says, I like healthcare, but I don't know which area of healthcare to go into, mm-hmm. we can definitely have that conversation. We do a lot about this is typically what a physician's assistant is doing. This is typically what a dentist is doing. And this is typically what their rewards are. And mm-hmm. we have a, a discussion about that. Okay, excellent. Um, and I, I understand that you and uh, Naomi, you teach a class here on campus. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so UC 1020, um, University College 1020, is a uh, seminar-type course um, where students who are pretty well decided they want to go into medicine, but maybe aren't 100% decided, or are brand new to the process, might be 100% decided, but don't know where to go, how to orient themselves on our campus to make the best use of our resources, can um, sign up for that class. And it's offered every fall and spring. Uh, They will hear from a variety of guest speakers. They'll hear from uh, the University of Utah School of Medicine, definitely. We want to make sure we have them. They'll hear from physicians from a variety of life backgrounds and Mm -hmm. people in a variety of specialties. They'll hear from researchers on campus and find out how to actually get involved, how to get paid to do research on our campus, uh, which a lot of students do, how to get involved in patient care activities. And the, the assignments in the class are not designed to do anything but prepare students to deal with the issues they've got to think about when they're writing their personal statements oh, okay. and when they're um, 
we have them work in groups a little bit. We have them work, do some individual assignments, do some reflection papers. And um, it's typically really good. By the end of that uh, time, they usually know whether or not med schools for them. They've heard enough information about the financial sacrifice, about the time commitment, about the effect on people's relationships even. The, the uh, guest speakers we have are pretty frank about that kind of thing mm-hmm. to know whether the rewards outweigh the cost for them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and those that um, take the class and decide that medicine is for them then have a whole toolbox full of resources. Okay. And they it can sounds use. Like, sounds like it's a pretty popular class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's very, we could probably teach more sections than we have okay. people to teach it. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, that's great, John. And so, um, so it sounds like, you know, personal advising, mock interviews, you'll read through individuals' essays, get feedback. You'll look at any right. portion of the application, it sounds like. so We will. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that, and that imposes a lot of responsibility on us because students will then, we find out a lot about students' personal lives. You know, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll write about medical situations that happen to their parents or their siblings mm-hmm. or themselves. And, um, and so we, we, t- we take that obligation seriously. We try to be, um, you know, good confidants yeah. for students. And you mentioned resources here on campus. What are some of the resources that a lot of your students uh, work with? Or how do they uh, fulfill some of those pre-med requirements or gain that experience that's necessary to be a successful applicant? So we have an information summary. That's our standard handout that I would give to first-time visitors to our office. It's also on our website Mm -hmm. uh, that lists an initial kind of clearinghouse place to go for each one of the major extracurricular areas. So, for example, research, the first place we would send students to would be Europe, which is the Undergraduate Research Opportunities Program. Mm -hmm. And Europe is a university program it's a pool of money set aside by the central administration to pay students to work part-time in research labs across campus, both mm-hmm. on lower campus and upper campus. And there's a process of going through and making sure that what the students are doing is actually research, that they're not simply gophers, mm-hmm. um, that they're doing meaningful things. They're learning lab techniques like PCRs and pipetting and things like that. Or they might be doing clinical research as well. So that's one of the first places we send students. They've got a faculty directory on their website where students can browse the available research opportunities and get a good idea if they're interested in neurology. Here's what's going on in the School of Medicine that you can get involved with, Mm -hmm. what the prerequisites might be. Some of them require basic biology, chemistry courses to be completed before or um, that you have some kind of data entry experience or something like that. So that's one place. For volunteer service, we have one of the best uh, campus volunteer centers in the country they were recently awarded a Carnegie grant. It's called the Benyon Center. Okay. And um, they're, they're ranked like in the top five consistently, mm-hmm. one of the kind of the treasures of campus. And if a student walks into the Benyon Center, they can be plugged into community service opportunities, the kind of the traditional get your hands dirty kind of things, mm-hmm. as well as what would be called leadership opportunities, tutoring kids in elementary schools, getting involved with big brothers, big sisters. Mm-hmm as well as some patient care opportunities. A lot of uh, connections to some of the hospice agencies in the Salt Lake Valley run through the Benyon Center. And so if a student at the University of Utah walks in there, they can be connected to those opportunities much more quickly and efficiently and trained to do those things as a Mm -hmm. volunteer much more quickly than they would if they approached those agencies on their own. Yeah, and I think the Benyon Center is it's in the student union. Right. Mm -hmm. Correct. Okay. Great. Well, it sounds like there's tons of opportunities down here, John. I guess guess the proof is in the pudding. I mean, how did you guys do last year? As far as, like, you know, where did all your students end up? Or, uh, you know, how many students got into medical school? What were some right. of the top programs? So uh, with medical schools, we maintain statistics on where our students end up. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we're most concerned about where they're accepted because then it's kind of their choice. And we help with the choice of where to go to occasionally. Okay. But um, our main task is to help students get those admissions offers. And so we definitely track the admissions offers. We have stats available on our website that students can view that I'll be referring to, uh, ppa.utah.edu. We have MD stats and DO stats. And we have a lot of students applying to both of those um, systems. When you look at um, the MD side, we publish where the students go by the numbers. Mm-hmm. So students can see how many students got into the University of Utah School of Medicine. I think when we look at our numbers for last year, we had something like 50 or something like around there because of the way we count the numbers. Mm-hmm. A student that went to the University of Utah got advising here about 50. Uh, of 50 our acceptance letters. 50 acceptance not letters. Not all 50 of them matriculants. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Right. And a lot of our, that doesn't say who's a Utah resident, who's not, those mm-hmm. kind of things. Um, the other big schools were, uh, over time, we're noticing some patterns, and some of these schools are actually communicating with us when we go to conferences, advising conferences and things. Medical College of Wisconsin is another um, big school. They're consistently our number two. Mm-hmm. Ohio State is usually number three. Um, St. Louis University is up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uniform Services, Rosalind Franklin in Chicago, mm-hmm. University of Colorado. So there, there are there's a steady group of schools that are here mm-hmm. um, pretty much all the time in terms of communicating with us and giving us certain kinds of feedback on students. And in some instances, we'll even occasionally visit the campus. That's not as common as it is with DO schools. Okay. But um, occasionally they do that. I mean, that's interesting, John, because, like, you know, I would think that the vast majority of students that attend the University of Utah are Utah residents because it's a state-supported school. Right. But I would think that um, that the number two or number three or number four medical schools that individuals are getting into would be geographically closer to Utah. It sounds like Wisconsin, Ohio are number two and three. What do you think is going on? So, yeah, so some of these, um, I mean, some of these schools are private. So the Medical College of Wisconsin doesn't have a stipulation. I don't believe that a certain percentage of applicants Mm -hmm. uh, or matriculants need to be from Wisconsin. I could be wrong on that. Ohio State does. They don't require, um, they don't have as many seats reserved for Ohio residents. Mm -hmm. So some of it has to do with the public-private dichotomy, but um, some of them just tell us they like, Ohio State specifically tells us they really like the diversity of extracurricular opportunities that our students have Mm -hmm. taken advantage of. And um, we're actually surprised that some of these things were requirements at the University of Utah School of Medicine in the way that they are, and they were impressed. So we're often talking to some of these admissions deans. And um, they're finding out things from us that they didn't know. Oh, this is why your students have so much research. This is why they have so much mm-hmm. volunteering and you know language experience, mm-hmm. these kind of things. So a lot of us, what they do outside the classroom. But I think they find they're, they're just well-rounded applicants. Mm-hmm. They're good in the classroom. They're good at taking tests. But they're also um, people people. Yeah. And from my standpoint, you know, being the dean of admissions at the universe, University of Utah School of Medicine, I go to the, you know, similar national meetings. I meet some of the same individuals, and they're very happy with Utah applicants. And what I consistently tell people anytime I do a presentation, when I do a podcast, obviously, is that if you meet our criteria at the University of Utah School of Medicine, you are that much more competitive at other medical schools. And it sounds like, sounds like you know, the proof is in the pudding. So it sounds like, you know, other medical schools are definitely picking up picking up on that. So, yeah, I'd say for the most part, that's really true. If a student uh, does the extracurricular activities in the way that we kind of set them up for at the University of Utah, on the undergraduate side, we know that most of our students will be applying to the University of Utah School of Medicine. It's one of the first questions we ask them. You know, do you want to stay in Utah? Is that one of the places you could be happy? Mm-hmm. And um, for the 95% of students that say, yeah, you know, that say yes, we start looking at how they need to get their extracurriculars um, 
even conceived of. What does it mean when we talk about leadership? How might you distinguish that from some of the things you're doing for volunteering or for some of the things you're doing as patient care or research? And um, just thinking of it in those categories is immensely helpful for students. Mm -hmm. And some of our students that are not even applying to the University of Utah School of Medicine, that are applying only to DO schools, when they come in, they're talking in the categories that the University of Utah School of Medicine has set out. Mm -hmm. Even though no no DO schools, for instance, use that exact terminology, Mm -hmm. it's very helpful to use that terminology, I think. Excellent. Um, And so of the 50 or so who got admissions to our medical school at the University of School of Medicine, how many people thanked you? How many people sent little thank you emails or thank you notes? Because I'm looking around your office, John. I'm not seeing the thank you notes. Oh, well, you know, there's so many of them. I have to kind of, you know, cycle them through. You have to hide them. Yeah. Yeah. So we we, we do get a lot of people that come in and will say, usually um, Cheryl finds out about these. Our secretary finds out about these. People will, will run in and say, you know, thanks. You know, I just found out. Thanks for all the help. And they'll leave. Occasionally people. The 22nd, thank you. Yeah, the 22nd, thank you. And we're usually, you know, Miami and I are advising, so we don't see them when they come in. Right. Um, but we, we occasionally get like a thank you note. Right. And occasionally we get brownies or something. That's okay. fine. All right. That's yeah. good. That's good. Um, let's see. You know, we, we've covered a lot, John. So, um, you know, something I want to kind of focus on. You've kind of made references to it. You know, the difference between MD or allopathic schools or DO or osteopathic schools. And, you know, let's pretend I'm not, you know, the dean of admissions at the U. You know, what are, what, what is, what are you telling applicants or individuals? What, what are the differences between these two programs? Because I know the DO schools are, are growing in popularity. They're growing in number. And I'm just very curious, you know, on this end, you know, what, what are you instructing applicants? Mm-hmm. So one thing we're trying to do is we're trying to make students simply just aware of the existence of DO schools okay. in the very beginning. I think that's one of our tasks as, um, as educators um, on the campus is to make them aware of that because they'll hear about it later. And what a lot of, um, when we talk to DO schools, a lot of them um, will tell us that students only find out about the existence of DO schools when they take the MCAT and score three points lower than they expected. Mm-hmm. Or when they talk to their brother-in-law and, you know, they tell them that I got into DO school and it's, it's a route for you. So we have a lot of, uh, I mentioned our library before, we have osteopathic physicians that have written books and they can read about osteopathic medicine. That way we have a couple of histories of osteopathic medicine. One of the better ones is called The Difference a DO Makes and it talks about the history of osteopathic medicine in the U.S. Um, and some of the uh, legislative things that um, osteopathic physicians have done to make sure they can take the same licensing exams as, uh, as allopathic graduates. So, but a lot, but that's kind of too abstruse for a lot of students. And so we try to explain it in terms of um, the things that are kind of unique to osteopathic schools. So typically osteopathic schools are private. There's only one or two public osteopathic mm-hmm. schools. So from an admissions point of view, they might have a slightly better chance of getting into any one single osteopathic school. The growth in osteopathic schools has been in the West. Mm-hmm. Students that want to stay in the West have a lot more options now if they mm-hmm. apply to osteopathic school versus allopathic. But it, it comes down to, I think, other other factors, which are you know, we try to connect students to shadowing. If they shadow a DO and they've got a great experience and they shadow an MD, and I know either one counts, for instance, for the University of Utah shadowing requirements, um, they might want to consider the one versus the other. Most students say that there is an element of convergence right now where where I've noticed a lot of MD schools have what they call integrative medicine programs that Mm -hmm. try to incorporate a lot of the pieces that osteopathic schools, many of them have been incorporating all along about nutrition and psychological health and, and spiritual mm-hmm. health and things like that. And so 
there's not as much of a difference. That's one of the one of the stories we're telling students. It's one of the narratives is that there's not as much of a difference as there used to be, mm-hmm. but there is still a difference. You need to be comfortable, for instance, touching people. Your very first year, you're going to be doing <laughs> osteopathic muscle yeah. you know, manipulation. As a physician, you as, will eventually as, touch as, people. Yes. And as a physician, you do that. So if that's you know something that you want to be involved with, you can do that. But we're also letting students know that it's not um, – simply primary care. One of the ideas about DO medicine is it was mainly primary care, but there are quite a few um, people in the specialties. Uh, Dr. Cynthia McManus is a regular speaker at our pre-med conference, and she's a professor of medicine at the School of Medicine, works at Primary Children's, and uh, talks about how she wouldn't, you know, use osteopathic uh, manipulative medicine if you paid her anymore mm-hmm. because it's been so long. And so you can really have a, a career that's in many ways identical uh, from the point of residency onwards um, if DO is the path for you. And a lot of students toss out the word holistic. I don't think a lot of students know what the word holistic means, but mm-hmm. they know the word exists. And so I think just meeting with DOs, shadowing them, and, and MDs can help you decide if that's the pathway for you. And for some students, it makes sense to do the DO pathway. Mm -hmm. A lot of our students will apply, for instance, only to the University of Utah School of Medicine on the MD side of the ledger, Mm -hmm. and then apply to a variety of DO schools because they feel that the University of Utah, um, because of the integrative medicine program, is a little more open to holistic medicine Mm -hmm. as well. Excellent. Um, You mentioned applying. How many schools do you recommend applicants apply to? And do you recommend a mixture of DO and MD? Yeah, so with our, um, the numbers we look at show that if a student applies to, say, 13 or 14 schools, mm-hmm. whether those are MD or DO, um, that's the best average number okay. you know, for a successful applicant. That's just the way it is now. That's a changing, moving target. Okay. With um, When we lump our groups together, we've got a group that only applies MD, mm-hmm. a group that only applies DO, and a group that applies MD and DO. And uh, the numbers, the percentages of applicants that get in, uh, the DO group was actually the lowest. Mm -hmm. The MD group was the second highest. And the combined MD-DO applicants had the highest rate of getting into at least one school. Mm -hmm. Um, It was something like 57% of people that applied Mm -hmm. to both got into at least one of their schools. Um, It kind of surprised me that it was -hmm. was that way. So if you're applying to 13 or 14 schools, MD and DO, is there a a, a ratio of how many places offer you an interview? Do you think you're good to go or – or you know what I'm trying to say, John? Right. Like, yeah, yeah. So that kind of that's where, where I get back to individualizing it for the students. So oh, okay. with you know some of the students, I'm gonna be better off applying to 20 schools and having mm-hmm. say six of those be DO schools, mm-hmm. maybe you know 13, 14 be BMD. Um, for other students, the balance might be better if you made it go the other way. If they only apply to five or six MD, so it just kind of depends on mm-hmm. what where they want to end up. And a lot of students have um, family situations; they mm-hmm. would prefer to live in certain areas of the country, or you know, they have connections at certain schools. And so we try to help them craft mm-hmm. a palette of schools, so to speak, that works for them. Yeah, I you know I I'm not a pre med advisor. I try not to do any pre med advising, but I do answer questions. And some questions I sometimes get is that, oh, I applied to 30 medical schools, but I just got one interview, and I didn't get in. And they're shocked that that happened. And I'm going, well, usually if you get off, you know, if you get a little bit more interview offers, you kind of, because you're not going to get into any school, you're not offered an interview. That's, That's just, you know, point blank. That's just what's going on. So I like to tell people, like, you know, if you get a lot of interview offers, that's a really good thing. That kind of bodes well. If you're only getting one interview offer, Kind of put all your eggs in one basket. So. Right, yeah. And, and, and to get back to your question about like, how many interviews they might get, someone that applies to 14, 15 schools might get two to three interviews. Mm-hmm. And often students are disappointed that they don't, they're only getting two to three interviews, but that's really all that it takes mm-hmm. to have a choice for most yeah. of our students yeah. is two to three. Um, so we mentioned DO and MD programs. Let's talk about Caribbean schools. What do you tell mm-hmm. individuals um, who ask about Caribbean schools? And do individuals from the U end up going to Caribbean schools? 
Yeah. So ever is so we we um, include Caribbean schools on our um, MD statistics because they grant the MD degree. Okay. Um, they're not part of AMCAS. But every year and we MCAS have is the American, the, the American Medical College Application Service. Yeah. Sorry, we use a lot of acronyms. Yeah. Um, and that's your primary application that's service. the primary application yeah. service yeah. students uh, that go through our office will also be using a comas which is the american association of colleges of osteopathic medicine application mm-hmm. service and sometimes the texas texas has their own um, uh, application service as well so students are often applying to three different uh, through through three different application portals and sometimes then to each individual caribbean school there's no kind of central unified mm-hmm. caribbean portal you apply to each individual school mm-hmm. on its own so what we do, the same thing we do with DO schools, we make their information available. For some students, that's really a good option. Some of the students have lived in the Caribbean and they want to go back. Mm-hmm. Um, some want, some have a sense of adventure and they want to travel, they want to see different parts uh, of the world. For some students, they have um, GPAs that are low enough, I think, where, and the, and the Caribbean schools will even openly market to these students and say, you know, we are your next chance, essentially, mm-hmm. to get in to get the MD. And for a lot of students, that can work. That can be their their chance to show they can actually make it in a, in a competitive environment. A lot of students have not had the best track record academically, but mm-hmm. a lot of the Caribbean schools will give them a chance. It it is kind of risky, I think, because they're not. I wouldn't say they are as. Um, you know, because they're not part of the American uh, Association of Medical Colleges, they're not as... Uh, well, let me just jump in here. I yeah, think one, one of the issues I think that the Caribbean medical schools struggle with, and they'll be very open and honest when you're talking about this, is that during your third and fourth year, you do rotations. You need to do rotations at hospitals and clinics. Mm-hmm. And uh, according to the AAMC and the, M, uh, the American Academy of Medical Colleges, these rotations need to be on American soil. So Caribbean students need to come back to, to, the, to the mainland, to the states, to do their third and fourth year rotations. And a lot of times you'll be moving every four to six weeks, going across the country. And so it's really hard to develop those relationships with faculty or have a place get to know you well. And your, your experience during your third and fourth year is a lot more fractured than if you were to go to a traditional MD program. And so that's, I know that's one of the things that they struggle with. Right, so, yeah. yeah. I know a lot of students are worried, too, about um – you're living on a small island <laughs> for, for a couple of years. And, yeah. you know, it, you've got to try doing that first. Yeah. yeah. And then I think the tuition is, is significantly higher in most cases, too. If True. I, if I recall. Yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. So we've covered a lot today, John. I guess just to finish up, I mean, what's, like, what's the most popular question? When someone walks into your office, what's usually their number one question, and how do you go about resolving that? Uh, okay. So one or of question the, or issue yeah, or so, – one of the big questions students uh, ask us is, "What is the fastest way to med school?" <laughs> and As in, so, yeah, like getting into a car and driving fast, or yeah. <laughs> well, so th- so that that could mean they're a transfer student and they want to know what is the fastest set of majors and minors, or uh-huh. uh, or if a student already has a major, what is the what are the minimum number of courses they need to take? What's the you know the shortest MCAT prep course? And so. When someone we hear that speed question a lot, what is the fastest way to, to make this happen? You know that I can become a doctor. Mm-hmm. So I usually ask them, do you, do "You have a terminal illness?" When they say no, <laughs> and I say, "Okay, we can slow down a little bit," okay. um, and then get them to laugh a little bit. So when when we look at what is involved to be a competitive applicant, that's how we slow students down a little bit and say, "You know, it's okay. There are students that are, you know, in Utah we have a culture where a lot of the students are really young, 
And if the same student who at age 24 feels ancient in Utah were to move to Massachusetts, they would feel like they were the youngest, one of the youngest people there. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's just a matter of perspective. So we, we're trying to um, slow students down a mm-hmm. little bit so that they can take advantage of all of the opportunities that will make them a competitive applicant. Yeah, I agree with that completely, John. I mean, life is not a race. Uh, life is a journey, not a destination. And I think... You know, the statistics I'm seeing, and correct me if I'm wrong because we could be looking at different statistics, is that more and more students are taking longer uh, to complete their undergraduate training. And if they do, they're taking more gap years. And mm-hmm. so for us, the average age of uh, the incoming class is almost 26 years old. Um, and that's one of the highest in the nation. So I think it reflects the unique qualities of our community. But also, when, you, when I talk to other deans of other medical schools, they see the same thing. The average age is rising. Right. So I think the national average is around 25 or so, if, I, if I'm remembering this correctly. So again, um, more and more students are taking time off. They're kind of building up their CVs. They're doing those activities, extracurricular mm-hmm. leadership research. And I think they're making more time to come to this uh, important decision, you know, if I'm going to go down this path. And I, I think that's fantastic because I think the more maturity – the more prepared you are to go on this journey to being a physician is, is, is the best. So Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think to expect someone to know at 18 exactly what they're going to do with the rest of their life is a lot of pressure to put on people. And so that's, that's what we try to do is slow them down a little bit and make sure this is the thing you want to do. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, John, it's been great talking to you. I look forward to our next one next year. Yeah, right. you too, Dr. Chan. Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.